listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. So, Mick, back to those phosphorus numbers, you know, we were talking about in the last episode. I look at that uh, Malik 3 color metric, and like I said, that's going to have to be a little bit higher number for me. Malik 3 ICAP, we didn't talk about that one at all. We talked a little bit about the ICAP and how it pushes out a little bit higher numbers. Maybe it's the organic, maybe it's something else. But when you go from a P1 Bray color metric to a Malik 3 going through an ICP, that number nearly doubles. So that 25 that I'm real happy with in the P1 Bray, to get to the same comfort level in soil fertility with the Malik 3 ICAP, I got to be at about a 45. Not quite double, but it's darn close. Yeah, it's it's quite a bit more because of the excitement in the in that argon plasma, and uh, there's been a lot of work done over the years of trying to correlate the two. And earlier in the last episode, we talked about those correlations. Do we believe in them or not? It just adds another math step. And uh, some of the work that I've done with with the ICAP was years ago in an older ICAP. And we found that as the values got higher, that spread got even further. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of our issues is pH. And, And that's one of the reasons why, you know, there's some confusion. And, and frankly, you know, working all those years at Midwest Laboratories, you know, we were part of the confusion because we, we really like that P1 Bray light extract solution. But because it's a light acid extract, it was affected by soil pH. And when you got soils that either were high in pH or, and sometimes this is a different issue, had high levels of free calcium carbonate in it, it would neutralize that extract solution. It would be much less effective at pulling phosphorus out of that soil. And that's where an extract solution like the Malik 3, which overall just has a, a more acid in it, um, not necessarily just pH, but more acid in it, and it is less affected by either free calcium carbonate or a higher uh, soil pH. The Olson extraction is actually a basic or caustic solution, so it's not affected by high pH soil at all. So that was one of the challenges. You know, we were used to the P1 Bray. I liked using the P1 Bray a lot. The number meant the most to me, but I had problems when I got into high pH soils, and then I automatically had to adjust to, say, the Olson and change my scale based off of that number. And that's where we actually would use more of those uh, uh, regressions or mathematic adjustments. We'd adjust that Olson number up to a P1 Bray scale. But I don't like doing the extra math, that's for sure. I don't think your attention spans hard, <laughs> hardly long <laughs> enough to do that extra math, Tim. So. A lot of truth to that, Mick. <laughs> you know, the... Those are some of the issues that we run into in trying to be a ag laboratory that tests all for everybody. And uh, we get soils with, even here in Nebraska, and, and you can go down to certain county, go to, into certain counties and have really low pHs to up to really high pHs. So uh, that's one of the issues that we have to take care of is we have to understand what we have. Uh, and the labs have different ways of, of knowing that. And that's a challenge for Central Valley Ag. I mean, our trade territory, when you look at northwest Iowa, really Nebraska, all the way out to Valentine, you look at north central Kansas, 
there's a lot of pH variation in there. We have a lot of pHs in the eights. We've got a lot of pHs that are in the fours. And, and unfortunately, we've got a lot more that are kind of in that uh, sweet spot, you know, the, the 6.2 to 7. You know, we've got a lot of soils in that range. But we as agronomists have to deal with that whole range. And, you know, you know, when we get into those really low numbers, of course, we're liming them to try to fix it. The really high pH numbers, generally trying to bring those down is very difficult. I, I normally try to manage around it. So you, you got to know what you're looking at on that lab report and take all those numbers into consideration when you start making advice to the grower. You know, Tim, you brought up a good point on the, on the high pH and managing around it. Are, have you found anything that, that can help limit those high pH or, or buffer them down at all in your experience? Or? Sure. If you want to go buy enough elemental sulfur to turn the ground yellow, you will bring the pH down. Or if you want to go buy enough ammonium sulfate to break the bank, you will bring that pH down. But one of the challenges you get is is the soil underneath it, your subsoil might be high pH, and that's going to counteract some of the work you're doing. Or we talked about that free calcium carbonate. A lot of those high pH soils have free calcium carbonate that we're not even measuring when we're measuring pH. And that reacts with the things that we bring in there to create acidity and neutralizes the acidity before we can bring down the soil pH. So I normally don't push guys toward it. I know some guys will try to do it. And if you own the ground, you know, you can make those long-term investments, but it's a big investment. You know, uh, manure sometimes will have an effect of buffering it down if you're at extremely high pHs, but other than the elemental sulfur, I just, I can't find a, a good way to bring it down. And that's where it's going to naturally want to go back to. And it seems like it, raises quicker than it than it lowers itself so. right and a lot of guys will have a, will uh, do something like gypsum and they'll say well i applied gypsum and that brought my ph down and i'll say okay it brought down your effective ph it doesn't truly change ph gypsum is not an acidifier what you most likely did, and it's the same thing you talked about with your manure, it, especially if you can open those soil pores and let some of those salts wash through your soil, generally those salts are going to be bases and they're bringing your pH up. If you can get better water infiltration, oftentimes your pH will go down a little bit. I think a lot of times that's what's going on. It's not a true pH change. And, and we see that with really high pHs. When you talk about the nines, those are almost all sodic soils. Right. You get things like sodium to move through the profile you will bring down your ph so you know saline and sodic soils could take up another two episodes right. so we better move right. on to you're right so okay we talked about ph we talked about phosphorus a little bit about potassium um what's your comfort level with the different soil tests mick i mean which ones are you really comfortable with that number and you can make good decisions of them and which one of them does a guy come to you and say hey what do you think about this and you say eh, question that number in the first place you know i think uh, the micronutrient extractions, I'm fairly comfortable with the DTPA extract. I've also, over the years, gotten more comfortable with the Malik 3 on the micros, uh, just because of an understanding of the labs trying to get more out of one extract than, than rather than doing two or three. Uh, get into the sulfur extract extraction. You and I are on the same page. I know this because we've had the conversation multiple times. A sulfur soil test value doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot to me. Uh, you know, since we've had the Clean Air Act, 
we know we need sulfur in these fields. Sulfur is part of the amino acid synthesis. It's part of protein. We have to have sulfur out there. Since the Clean Air Act opened up or came across, and I don't even remember what year that was. Probably the early 70s. You know, we quit putting sulfur into the atmosphere. You know, when you and I were young, we heard about acid rain. We don't hear about acid rain anymore because we've cleaned up that sulfur out of the atmosphere. Now we're not getting free sulfur. Uh, in higher organic matter fields, further to the east of us, they're finally starting to see the effects of the Clean Air Act that we saw 10, 15 years ago here in Nebraska. Right, because of that low organic matter. Organic matter has so much sulfur in it, you've got to buffer against your problems when you've got high organic matter. And that counts for sulfur, that counts for nitrogen, that counts for a lot of your micronutrients. When you got high organic matter, you get a little more leeway to play with. And that's one thing about, you know, Central Valley Ag's trade territory. We've got true blow sands with cation exchange capacities of five or less. Everything we talk about from managing soil fertility from the laboratory test is so much more important in those sands than what it is in your heavier clay soils. And, and that's huge. That's one of the reasons I look at CEC first is if I'm dealing with a sand, not only do I need to pay attention to what my soil test levels are, I need to think about how many times I'm going to apply these nutrients through the course of the year because that dirt just won't hold it. Exactly. I know I like to give you hell and call it dirt instead of soil because you're a true soil scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Yeah, and you saw my blood pressure raise there, obviously, <laughs> calling it dirt. Uh, I always say dirt's a four-letter word, so... Uh, so soil. <laughs> but soil's a cleaner word. There you go. Uh, you think about boron, and we extract boron by hot water because boron's very mobile in the soil, and we can pull it out with hot water. How reliable is that soil test, Tim? Yeah, not the best. And the, the correlation calibration studies. I mean, wh what's the constant thing in the correlation study to boron? There is no correlation to yield. I mean, time and time again, that's why most universities don't even list it as a nutrient they make recommendations for, is they couldn't find a strong correlation to yield. Now, the difference today compared to like when they did some of those studies is like you and I have already talked about, Nick, a guy who's raising 400 bushel corn to the acre, that guy's paying attention to boron. Why is he paying attention to boron? Because he took care of all the easier stuff. He's got his pH right. He's got his phosphorus in a, a very high range, potassium, sulfur, zinc. He's done all of those things correctly. He, he's got a fantastic nitrogen program. You know, we don't talk about nitrogen a lot when we talk about the soil test because, you know, it's really not related. I mean, you need to know your organic matter, carry over nitrate, unless you're doing something wrong, you're generally making pretty good use of it in your crops. There's not a lot of carryover. So nitrogen to me is generally a separate conversation than the soil test, other than I really look at that CEC because how heavy that soil is makes a difference on how much nitrogen I feel comfortable applying at any one time. But back to those micronutrients like boron, it's only for guys who've taken care of all the steps I would call higher priority pH, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, zinc, nitrogen, do I even start a boron conversation with? And if he starts a boron conversation with me, I'm going to back him up to all the other nutrients and make sure I'm comfortable with where he's at. And exactly, Tim. That's what we have to do. We have to get the big things right before we start worrying about the little things. It's our job as an agronomist. Let's spend your money, Mr. Farmer, on the things that I'm most comfortable that are going to produce you profitable yield before we spend them in other places where I have less confidence. You kind of have that same priority list as you go through talking to a guy? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, 
I know one thing that you probably spend a little more time on than I do is base saturation. Uh, in my opinion, we can't do a lot to change that base saturation. It is what it is. It's going to go back to the... I typically look at base saturation as more of a flag. Is, is there something funny going on with this soil? When I go to base saturation, so I'm, I'm generally going to start with potassium. It's generally going to be a little bit lower as a percentage goes. Looking for a number in that 3 to 5%, but if I've got a heavier soil, a lot of times I can have part per million. I don't think we talked about this much, but around 200 part per million is where I want to be with potassium. Doesn't mean I stop application there, but I'm not pushing to build much further than that. And in light sandier soils, generally it's hard to even get to that number, so maybe 150 part per million. But the base saturation, if I've got a heavy soil, a lot of clay in it, a lot of cations held, then that 200 part per million, I may worry about things like magnesium or calcium interfering a little bit with potassium uptake. So I'm pushing my application a little harder when that base saturation is under three to five percent. But Mick, in all honesty, 90% plus of the time, I'm making those calcium recommendations off pH. If I get my pH right, generally the calcium base saturation is going to be right too. The exception is probably those high mag soils. In that case, again, gypsum is probably what I'm going to go after to try to wash a little of that mag out, get the calcium up. And let's go back to correlation calibration. You, you have this, if I have this conversation with either of my two professors I spent the most time working on my master's degree in agronomy with, they both want to reach across the desk and slap me because the, the, the land-grant universities have not been able to tie base saturation percentages with yield. I, I've just seen it a few times in fields I've worked with or consultants I've worked with where specifically in those high mag situations we've ran into those issues, but consistently it's correlation to yield and calibration to any recommendation with the land-grant university backing is very weak. Now, I have seen a little bit more of this coming from, say, NRCS over in Indiana, Ohio lately. But University of Nebraska, you know, I worked with Professor Wartman and Dr. Shapiro, and those guys did not like me talking about base saturation. Tim, I think the people wanting to reach across the desk and smack is more with your personality <laughs> than anything so and it uh, grows with time that number <laughs> the number of times somebody wants to smack you or the number of people that want to smack you both <laughs> as long as we're clear on that so. right Bree. Right. <laughs> what do you think Mick? Uh, you know uh to me, I don't spend a lot of time on the on the base saturation because I think if we're getting the pH right and getting these other until we get to those high mag spots uh, or maybe some borderline sodic soils, uh, we're not going to do a lot to change those. As long as we have the other things right, we're going to get the base saturation corrected itself. Uh, you know, I think about uh, some soils in our trade territory, a little bit high in, in sodium. And I wouldn't consider them saline or sodic, but they're inhibiting water infiltration. And so maybe a calcium application or a gypsum application uh, can help open that soil up, a manure application, open that soil up and get that sodium to drain through the profile. And most of the time, in my experiences, it's been finding that hard pan. And we find that hard pan and we've got to get below, get water infiltration through that hard pan. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mick. You know, we talk about soil fertility, 
But a key thing about, and, and you get it from the soil test, but a key thing in, in just understanding the soil and what your issues are, are water. Water is probably the, abs well, it is the absolute most important thing to yields, maybe second to sunlight. But when you think about where you've got problems with yield and you're looking at that soil report, think about what things am I seeing on here that might be related to water? Either infiltration, movement, ponding, any of those, because water trumps everything else that's on there. Absolutely. So, and that's part of the art, right? We talk about the science and reading the soil test, but a little bit of it's the art, the art of experience and understanding how some of these things can kind of relate to each other. If I see a high organic matter, a high sulfur, or a high nitrate, the first thing I'm thinking about in all three of those cases is how is water moving through this system? And the first thing I might need to do is get a topo map and just see how things flow across that field. It's certainly a depression in a field. Uh, may look perfectly flat from the road, but a depressed area can hold a lot of water for a long time. And that, that's completely appropriate, Matt, because every time I work with you, I'm at least a little depressed. <laughs> 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 All right, time for a funny farm story. And I've got this one. So, Mick, this probably isn't environmentally correct. And you were mentioning that Clean Air Act earlier. So anybody that's really in tune with the Clean Air Act should probably turn their radio off right now. But when I was growing up in the farm, and this was uh, in the early 80s through the mid-80s is when I was spending a lot of time, you know, as a more effective member of the team, or at least, I don't know, I, I, I was older and I could do more things, but I also probably broke more things. One of the things we did to save a little money on, on our farm is we had a, a nice shop and we did a lot of our own work and we would even buy um, equipment or cars and refurbish them over the winters. We had a, a good shop and my dad had a lot of mechanical and, and even uh, body and painting knowledge so we could do a lot of things. But to, to do that through the winter, of course, you got to heat that, that shop and that costs a lot of propane. So we built our own wood-burning shop stove out of plate steel. And we were able to burn a little uh, used motor oil in there. We were able to burn, uh, you know, they had corn stoves back then. We would actually mix a little corn with some motor oil, and that would actually be a pretty effective fuel for keeping the shop warm. And, of course, we we uh, had some timbers around us, had some tornadoes go through. So we had a lot of cleanup. We cut a lot of firewood and split a lot of firewood, and we are able to save some pretty good money there using that uh, that shop stove. The good thing about cutting firewood is it warms you twice. It does. You warm yourself up pretty good making making all the cuts and, and breaking all the axe handles that you break or sledgehammer handles that you break as you're splitting that wood, which that costs quite a bit of money. But we could use the sledgehammer handles as kindling to help start the fire. Anyway, one thing we learned is to really get a good fire going, especially if you're dealing with a little bit wetter wood, was to use a car tire. And a car tire will really get that fire humming. Well, we were, we were working in there one day, and uh, I'm a lazy teenager, and I had the fire going, and I don't know if I needed to split more wood, or if we just hadn't brought wood in, or whatever. I go back to grab some wood to throw in there, and there's none in the back of the shop. So, there was another car tire. So, I throw that second car tire into that wood-burning stove, thinking, well, this will keep her going for a while, and it did. 
<laughs> and that sucker turned red and started bouncing up and down on the shop floor. And I don't know what that thing weighed, probably 400 pounds, but it is humming and vibrating and bouncing up and down on the shop floor as it's turning bright red. <laughs> and I had to leave as long as we make sure there were no flammables anywhere near that stove. The thing about heating up that hot is it's always got to cool back down. And when it cooled back down, it sucked in the sides of the stove and the sides of the heat exchanger and the sides of the stove door so you couldn't open it anymore. And my dad had some long conversations with me about how that was not a good idea to put that second car tire in there. So for those of you at home that ever think about using a car tire for heat, one is fine, two is way too many. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to rebuild the stove? That's what I want. No, my dad did. He was a much better welder than I was, and he was probably swearing the entire time. But yes, he, we rebuilt the stove by now. Instead of just having plate steel, we had plate steel at angles, so it would hold itself up more and handle that again. But I, I learned the valuable lesson about never throwing that second car tire in an already hot stove. I never had a shop stove with a big enough door to throw a car tire in, so maybe that's a reason that we don't do that. I was watching the California wildfire footage, and guys were, the, the reporters, of course, who don't seem to know anything, but were, were really uh, surprised at how much heat would come off of a car tire that goes in, in, into fire. Well, they've never actually burned two of them right next to each other in an already hot environment, or they would understand the amount of energy that can come off of that. Plenty of energy. There you go. So speaking of energy and hot air, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that sulfur test. You know, you talked a little bit about how, you know, this, the environment has not given us the sulfur that we used to have. So we're paying more attention to sulfur now. I just happened to have a, a good young agronomist call me just yesterday to go over sulfur results. And she had um, some sulfur results from four years ago where we'd done our grid sampling and she was running somewhere in that 15 to 20 part per million sulfur. And in the exact same field, uh, now four years later, she's running five part per million sulfur. And she says, well, what do I do about that? And the first thing I said is, look, you got to take those numbers with a grain of salt. Can we find the numbers from another four years ago? So we're looking at uh, 2020 crop season or 2019 samples. You know, four years ago is 2015. Could we find the 2011 samples? Because one thing we haven't talked about, Mick, the trend line is so important. And that's, again, why you don't switch labs. Because something like sulfur, which is kind of a crappy test, just a piece of junk. We've never come up with a test that we really love and feel co completely comfortable comfortable or confident in like we are with phosphorus or pH when I get that sulfur number almost the first thing I want to know is what's the trend line been exactly and you know to me when you're telling the story my head's going well look at 2019 as it has turned out wet year very wet year very high amount of rainfall record rainfalls and across most of our state and I'm thinking, oh, the sulfur just leached out and it's gone, and that's why we're where we're at. That's one explanation. You know, uh, without looking at the history, that's that's where my first jump would be, is because if I think back to five, four years ago, eh, it wasn't near as wet as what we have been this year. So, and we were still recovering, would have been recovering yet from that 2012 drought year. So. Without irrigation, not knowing whether it was irrigated or dry land, that would lead me to think, okay, if it's a dry land field, then we're still in that recovery system from the 2012 drought. And then now we're to the 20, 
19 floods. Flood, right. So and it was a dry land acre. Yeah. Two different yield environments or two different worlds that we lived in in those in that five-year span. No, that's exactly right. Is you've got to think about weather. We saw that back in 2012 with the drought, or I'm sorry, 2000, yeah, 2012 with the drought that uh, we saw a lot of changes in, in those levels uh, coming from that lab analysis, just from water moving through the system or, or not moving through the system and what that does to nutrient cycling as well. Back to these uh, sulfur tests, you know, we, we didn't have the older numbers, so I couldn't see a trend line. Like you said, it rained a lot this year. The other thing is there's a natural move from high fertility to low fertility by the way we do our grid sampling and write our fertilizer equations. So with these numbers being around 20 part per million, a lot of times that's not going to call for additional sulfur. If there's not the organic matter to kind of make up for what you're mining off, you're probably taking off with 200 bushel corn, 15, 20 pounds of sulfur just with that grain removal. Exactly. And that makes a difference. If you're not putting it on and you're continuing to take it off, you should expect the numbers to go down. So again, as we look up, think about trend line, laboratory tests, and the numbers you get from the test you've also got to look at okay what's my yield history what have i been taking off with the grain truck as you move to those micronutrients you talked a little bit about the dtpa versus the malic 3 and your comfort level i would say zinc i've got fairly good comfort with especially on the dtpa i know that the malic 3 there's a good correlation there but the malic 3 number is quite a bit higher like maybe 50 percent higher makes me nervous as i look from one lab test to another and then I'll, I'll look at the number and i'll think well that's not that high did they regress the number back or did they not that makes me worried about what happened to the number between when the analysis was done and when i see it how much did they play with it which again as long as they divulge it to you so you understand what you're looking at, it's fine. But you get past zinc, and now, again, that correlation calibration is just not there. But like we talked about, as guys get everything else right and move their yield up, we've got to start paying attention to things like manganese and boron and copper. You know, I know that you've worked with, with some high-yield contest fields, and and certainly once we get past zinc, it's, it's a roll of the dice. But... As we look at those really high yield environments, we know that we need to bring the copper up. We need to bring the manganese up. You know, uh, a lot of folks don't think about manganese a whole lot and, and its role in photosynthesis. And I learned this several years ago. You put manganese on a crop and it greens it up and it helps it photosynthesize better. Uh, you know, you, you think about that, but do we have a really good way of, of soil applying copper and manganese? And we really don't, honestly. So. That gets to be a challenge too. You get to a nutrient that you're trying to make a one or two pound application on, and it's very difficult with today's equipment to get that even spread. Um, what I will generally do is, and, and, you know, we do grid sampling, but I don't normally try to verbrate something like manganese or boron. What we'll generally do is take something like, say, manganese sulfate, blend it with something else that we could use. Like, just say we could use some sulfur, so we'll blend it with gypsum, and that gives us a good base of, say, 50 or 80 pounds of product, and then I'm only getting in that manganese sulfate. Maybe I'm only getting 10 pounds of manganese sulfate. I can't evenly spread 10 pounds, but I can evenly spread 50 if I blend it with something else right. as a base could be map, could be potash, whatever. So yeah, there's all kinds of challenges as we get into it. It's not just as simple as, well, you could use two pounds of manganese here and a half pound here. That's 
you know, sometimes we can get that done with a micro spreader bin, but sometimes not either. So we've got to understand our equipment limitations, our knowledge limitations, and frankly, our limitations in understanding variability across that field anyway. When we grid sample, we come up with all those little 50 foot by 50 foot blocks across there. Those aren't all laboratory test numbers either. No. You know, Tim, I, I, as you're thinking about this, as you were talking about the other micronutrients, I remember getting a phone call from a guy and he thought he had some iron deficiencies in his field. And he says, well, I got a bunch of old iron sitting next to the shop and I want to get rid of it. And do you think it'd help if I buried it in that field? And I said, well, I said, it, it could help, but why don't you reach, grab a, a chunk of iron or a rusty wrench and stick it next to your recliner so that if you feel like you're iron deficient you can lick on that every <laughs> once in a while too yeah you know mick and i know you've got a, some history in, in you know fertilizer manufacturing getting nutrients into the plant is not the same thing as just having the nutrient there a formulation will get into the plant is often very important and that's you know that's one of the roles we fill as an ag retailer or a cooperative in, in finding those products that work to get the nutrients in the plant and making those recommendations to the grower you know, definitely, Tim, uh, I, we've come a long ways rather than just the the base fer fertilizers that we have out here, the maps and the potash. Uh, we've got the blended products, the microessentials at SC, for instance. We've got micronutrient packages that let us get a little even more even spread of those micronutrients so that when we get those guys doing the right thing on the first few steps, then we can start adding some micronutrients. One of the things that I think of a lot as we talk about micronutrients, and like you mentioned, that blended product will say, well, I'm short of manganese. Okay. You think you're short of manganese and, and, it, and you know, it, the soil test is showing us that it looks like we're short of manganese. And that's something I've gone after, especially for higher yield growers or growers that have everything else is perfect and this is kind of their limiting factor we're going to go after that because it very well could have big yield implications but a blended product that's got multiple micronutrients in i think brings some extra value to the table in the fact that we really don't know what we're doing with micronutrients near like what we do with phosphorus so saying well this has got some manganese it's got some boron it's got some copper that's not a bad thing because really we're kind of getting to the edge of our knowledge and our ability to to understand what that impact is so throwing a few more marbles out there to try a few to hit a few more spots that might be part of our issue that's worth going after one other thing i'll say about those micronutrients a lot of this ground that we work in our trade territory, you know, western Iowa, eastern Nebraska, north central Kansas, it's been tilled and we've been pulling crops off of it for 150 years. And if you pull crop off for 150 years and you don't replace a nutrient like manganese or boron, you could have an impact. Absolutely. So yeah, with 150 years of nutrient removal with all these crops, it's not surprising that we'll start reaching some limits with some things like boron and manganese that we haven't had to think about in the past. But like everything else, as we talk to those growers, we kind of move down that priority list. We try to help them spend their money efficiently where they're going to get the most bang for their buck, the most yield, the most return for the money they're spending. And generally that means we're going to start up at the top, at the nitrogen, pH, phosphorus areas. But as a guy gets those things right, then we generally move down and, and he generally they're raising their yield as we go. So we've got more reason to move down into those lower priority items, we'll call them. Right. And 
that's the key, Tim, is we've got to keep them right from the beginning and get the first steps right, then move on to the to the lesser known steps. And I don't pretend to be an expert on those micronutrients, nor do you. Uh, oh, I pretend to be an expert on most everything. Well, we know. You pretend to do a, know a lot of stuff that you don't know, Tim, <laughs> but that's the way it is. But t- typically, it's it's an unknown ground, and we just, we got different ideas out there that we've tried, and, and we'll continue to look at it from our standpoint and try to find the the solution that works the best and most consistently. Right. And it's a long-term solution for a long-term problem. Generally, the problems we see out there, they didn't happen in one year. They happened over years and years of, of some behavior. And there's something that we might need to, to make some adjustments there. And that's what we do. And we try to work in the farmer's system. So it's working with the way he plants, the crop rotation he uses, the way he manages his soil, the way he manages his whole operation. Maybe there's livestock, maybe there's not. So there's there's a lot of things in there that we've got to bring into it, and we try to make a good long-term recommendation. But generally, the things we're doing is we talk about the soil test and the lab analysis. It's a long-term systems approach, and that's the best way to do it. That's right, Tim. It's, it's got to be a long-term solution and that's good and beneficial for everybody. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our Agronomy Focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.